Hello there, and welcome back to For the Defense. My name is David Oscar Marcus, and we have a very cool bonus episode during the holiday season for you today. We have Michael Schachter and Randall Jackson. They were the trial team, trial partners during the Tom Barrick case. Barrick was a close ally of Donald Trump, and he was accused of being a foreign agent. Uh, one of the new hot charges that the Department of Justice is bringing, lots of these cases are popping up. And Schachter and Jackson got an acquittal. Michael's with the Wilkie firm, Randall's with the Wachtell firm, and they made a great, great team when they represented Barrick. You're going to hear how they overcame a hostile venue, how uh, they discussed persuading jurors, death by PowerPoint, how to use stories in opening and stories in closing, um, whether to, how to get enough sleep during trial, whether to call your client or not how to savor a win, which we don't do enough of. All of these really interesting, fun topics. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did, and I hope you all have a wonderful holiday season. Thanks for listening. Well, I'm really excited this morning. I have um, two of the great criminal defense lawyers in New York. And I've recently gotten to know them. And I, I can say that we're we're sort of in the same dojo the way we try cases. So I'm excited to have Michael Schachter from the Wilkie Farr firm and Randall Jackson from Wachtell Lipton. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank, Thank you. you. So you guys got this awesome, you've had a string of acquittals, but an awesome acquittal last year in the Tom Barak case. Am I saying his his name right? He pronounces it Barrick. Barrick, Tom Barrick case. It, it was um, really amazing acquittal and a really important case and victory. Um, let me start with you, Michael. Maybe you could tell us a little about who he is and what the charges were in the case. Sure. So uh, Tom is the founder and former leader of a uh, large private equity firm called Colony Capital, which is focused on uh, a lot of real estate investments, but they also... Uh, owned First Republic Bank. They owned um, Paris Saint Germain, the soccer team in uh, in France. They owned Carrefour, which is like the Walmart of France. Uh, hotels all around the world, uh, and is a very successful uh, businessman uh, based in LA. Uh, and uh, he also uh, had a long-standing relationship with Donald Trump through uh, real estate investing uh, businesses. Uh, and when you know Trump was running for president, he uh, gave a lot of interviews uh, about uh, about Donald Trump, and also chaired his inauguration. And so, you know, obviously a very high profile guy, somebody who can afford the big firm fees, which you know you don't find individuals that can do that every day of the week, especially ones that don't have insurance and so on. So, um. You know what is he charged with? What 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 are the charges in the case? So he was charged with uh, acting as a illegal agent of the United Arab Emirates and uh, effectively their ally Saudi Arabia. Um, the allegation was that uh, he um, was acting at their you know their direction and their control without uh, registering with the uh, Attorney General as your required to do. Um, and then uh, in connection with an interview that he gave, he was also charged with uh, obstruction of justice and making false statements. 
You know, Randall, at, at a lot of big firms now, you know, criminal defense lawyers specialize in sort of one type of criminal case. You know, they're criminal antitrust lawyers or they're um, securities lawyers. It's it's rare to see um, generalists like you guys who can sort of take any federal criminal case and and run with it. These charges are sort of the hot charges now with the federal government. Had you guys handled these kinds of cases before or was this something new? Uh, well, first of all, that's nice of you to say. I think, uh, you know, I do think Mike and I have, have seen the world the, the same way. We've had a similar kind of experience, I guess, over our careers, having been federal prosecutors and then being uh, uh, in the defense bar. We'll forgive and- you for the federal prosecutor part. <laughs> Would you, it's a, thank you. Thank you. We've been looking for that, that absolution. But, you know, I, I think that we do think that there are some common uh, we both think that there are some common things that occur in complex criminal trials that, um, you know, the type of thinking that can deconstruct those trials seems to stretch across a wide array of different uh, of different types of criminal charges. And so we've we felt comfortable going into this trial. <clears throat> I had a little bit of experience working on. Uh, national security type cases when I was a when I was a federal prosecutor, but this was a new charge for both of us. But the fundamental question, I think, was one that was the same as all of the fundamental questions in the criminal cases that we have faced, which is, you know, what is the actual story of what happened here, and uh, does does the story that the government is trying to tell line up with the evidence that's here? And how can we explain to the jury a better, more truthful, more complete story that's going to resonate with them more? And at the end of the day, you know, I think it did. That's that's what the trial came down to. I think that the jury saw the version <clears throat> of the truth about Tom's life that we were telling was the was the much more compelling, much more, uh, uh, much more complete. And, and, and frankly, I, I think much more accurate version of Tom's life. I would say that in there's a lot of uh, common elements to uh, white collar criminal defense cases, regardless of the statute. Um, one of the things that you are uh, o- almost always up against is, um, you know, you have people that may have, you know, wealth or influence that is outside of uh, a lot of jurors, you know, normal experiences. And they may come into a case with preconceived notions about, you know, people like that. Um, and so it's it, there's there's commonality to needing to uh, to to diffuse that, um, and then also uh, I think in in white collar cases cases uh, based on you know, charging crimes in the business environment, a lot, a lot of times the prosecution has a surface uh, argument, surface pieces of evidence that, that if you just skate the surface, they look pretty compelling for the government. Uh, but the defenses are much more in the weeds and how you drag the jury down with you uh, into the weeds to understand that what may on the surface not look great is really, um, you know, that can give it a really uh, incomplete, a false impression. And if you're really focused, then you can see that this person didn't do anything wrong. I think that's common in a lot of white collar cases. You know, it, th- those are interesting points. And, and you know, you always hear government openings talk about 
um, lies or greed, you know, it's common, common themes that come out right, right from the beginning. Um, and, and you heard that in, in, in this case, um, with the government starting out with lies. And, and we're going to talk about in a second how you guys started out with the opening. But before we get there, I, I'm interested, you know, these cases, these white collar cases now have so much discovery. I mean, it's, it's, it used to be in the old days that we would complain we're not getting enough stuff, right? We'd always have to be fighting and scrapping to get, to get discovery. Now it's the opposite problem. They give you, so many terabytes of information, it's hard to figure out what's important and what's not. The nice thing about being at a big firm, of course, is that you have resources to go through it. Um, but but I always find, you know, it's hard to rely too much on folks because then you don't have your arms around the case. So how, how do you all um, go through the discovery and make sure you have a good handle on it when there's so much stuff? Randall, we'll start with you. Well, I mean, I think you're right that uh, <clears throat> it's helpful being at, being able to have the support of some very smart, very trusted uh, associates and 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 uh, uh, some of our more junior partners who've helped on the case. Uh, Casey Donnelly is an amazing attorney who worked on the Barrett case and on some other cases with us, who's been fantastic and key. Um, but but yeah, I think that I think that the I think that the way that the key to that is that. We start from we have started from the standpoint of making sure that the younger people on the team have a key have a complete understanding of what we're trying to accomplish here, what the core theory of the case is, and that they're not just sort of blindly marching through a bunch of documents and then figuring out an appropriate division of labor where everyone is 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 is, is taking ownership of parts of the case that are key. And then as a group, having discussions to make sure that everyone is on the same page and that we are, we're, we're not getting siloed in terms of the information when you're digging through those terabytes and, and, and maintaining the communication and making sure that we're all in, in sync. Right. Mike, do you have to, oh, sorry about that. Dude. No, no, you know, it's, it's important because it is hard to figure out now how to get the right stuff out of all that information. You mentioned Casey, by the way, I got to meet Casey in the Gillum trial, who's the best. And, and she was, you can tell just a, a real criminal defense lawyer as well. It, I, I will say, you know, a, a lot of times you meet criminal defense lawyers at big firms who are criminal defense lawyers in name only. They, they are cooperation lawyers, you know, how to get a deal. You guys are not that. Thank goodness, but but that's a lot of times what you see at at a lot of the big firms, and and it was such a pleasure to meet Casey at 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 um at the Gillum case because she was you know a, a real criminal defense lawyer. Without a doubt, I mean Casey is you know one of the most talented lawyers you know I've ever worked with, and you know when we were we I think in the Bear case we were really blessed with from the top to the bottom you know our associates. Who, you know, I won't even try to name all of them. The team has been amazing. But Stephen Ballou, one of the associates, was just completely dialed in to all of the, the the crazy details of the case. And when you and when you have each person within the team, I think empowered to dig in and really own and understand the pieces of the case that they are they're responsible for. You can have an intelligent conversation amongst the team that really positions everyone to utilize that shared knowledge you know and also i think that if i can just add to that yeah so 
one thing that uh that that it just has to do with the the, the personalities at uh uh that we've assembled um yeah they're fighters i mean casey donnelly you got to know her she is just uh, an incredible fighter Stephen is the same way and a little bit that's culture um and and if you if you uh lead uh by by showing fight by always thinking about you know about that uh, about being tenacious and they see that uh then you know a lot of young lawyers will uh will will get into that and they'll understand that's the that's that's the, we're we're in battle mode uh and and you know you can really set that set that tone it is interesting right because the old practice of criminal defense it was a bunch of like lone rangers right like you know the the old time criminal defense lawyers even in new york like jerry shargell um uh you know folks that we've had on the podcast are they they were solo shops or or you know they had a couple lawyers to support them um it's different it's really you know jerry leftcourt i had on the podcast who was who was awesome but these you know these the, the sort of practice is changing now and a lot of these cases um are not the lone rangers um but but folks like you who have a, have a big team i'm i'm interested in you know, you guys tried this case together. It's a long trial. How do you figure out how to split it up? I know, Michael, you did opening and Randall, you did closing. But, you know, again, in the old school method, one lawyer would do the whole thing uh, with a couple of help from associate. But you guys split it up. How do you do that? I, by the way, Margo, my partner and I like to split up the trial, too. In the Gillum case, she'd opened and I closed. Um, how do you figure out how to split up a trial, Michael? Well, if it's a, if it's a long and complex trial, I just... I think it's very hard uh, not to approach it as uh, as a team. I think it's very hard to really tackle, you know, each witness, each issue, um, uh, you know, on your own. Uh, and also, I think it's very helpful um, to have somebody who thinks about trials the same way you do, uh, and you know, can it can be a real true partnership, and you just know. I, I don't need to know everything <laughs> that that person is going to be uh, uh, doing with respect to that particular witness. I just know them and I know they got it and that's great. And I can focus on the things that I need to focus on when it's a long and complicated trial. It's just very hard to, to do it on your own. And particularly, you know, as you pointed out in some of these document intensive cases, it just, each witness requires so much uh, attention uh, that, it's just really hard. It's hard to do. It's hard to be a lone ranger uh, and try, you know, a Tom Barrack or some of these cases with massive amounts of discovery where that actually, I think, presents an enormous advantage to the defense because the government can't go through all those materials. Now, they may have, you know, lawyers for corporations that are helping them find that stuff. But uh, but, you know, you you can really catch them napping a lot because they just don't know what's coming. They have a a singular, they have a, just a, a very tunnel vision view of the case, and they're not seeing all the different elements. And if you can bring the resources to bear uh, to really mine the discovery, to you know have different talented lawyers focused on uh, different witnesses, I think that you're. I think that can pose a real advantage. You, you know, you all had a bunch of challenges in terms of where you were and who your client was. I mean, you know, people are talking about Trump being tried in New York now and the challenges he would face with a jury um, in New York. And he's raised that, of course, you had a a, a person very um, connected to to Trump. The trial was going to be in New York. Um, 
you also he's of Middle East descent. There's issues with trying to find a jury who can be fair with all these different challenges. Um, do you do focus groups? Are you believers in focus groups and jury consultants? Did you have that here? Can you talk about that? Randall, I'll start with you. We, we do a lot of thinking about what are the messages that we want to communicate to the jury and and yeah what kind of jurors that we want and we do work with uh you know we do work with uh some outside consultants we do uh some focus groups sometimes we do you know we take a, we take advantage of the full range of opportunities to really test our ideas and think hard about what what actually makes sense and look a lot of the value of that is sometimes you're hearing what you are saying, what your trial partners are saying, and you're getting a chance to digest it in a form that's a little bit different from the echo chamber that you may be in when you're sitting in your offices. And so I think those have been invaluable tools. This trial, you know, we definitely went into the trial knowing that Brooklyn was perhaps the most inhospitable uh, forum possible for a guy who we, we, were, we had an over-under on the number of times the government would would reference his relationship to, to, to former President Trump. So, you know, you go into that eyes open. But I do think that, you know, at the end of the day, both Mike and I believe when you fundamentally approach cases and jurors from the perspective of trying to show them the better truth, the more complete, more accurate truth, you usually get with, with whatever type of jury you're dealing with to the to a better place. It's one of the reasons I've loved Mike's opening statements in all these trials. They've been, you know, you follow, they've been repeatedly a pattern of you hear the, the government's sort of opening statement. And then Mike's Mike's real talent beyond being, you know, just a just he has sort of a natural, you know, Midwestern charm, uh, even after too many years in New York. But but the real thing is he's able to communicate some of what he was talking about earlier, this uh uh, this this truth of what's going on dig down into the weeds of okay this is the real deal and i've watched repeatedly when jurors are looking and listening and they're like this guy's trying to tell me something that that feels like authenticity and 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 and, and accuracy you know like well i'll listen and see what i can hear so we're going to get to opening in one second but before we get there you know one of the things that really bothers me about federal court New York especially is the limited voir dire. There's no attorney voir dire. I don't think you guys got it either. Um, and so, you know, in state court in Florida, you can go for days picking a jury. I don't do a lot of state court, but my partner, Margo, grew up in a system where you could really interact with the jurors and figure out um, what's going on. I guess judges now are leaning in these big cases to doing questionnaires. Did you all get a questionnaire in the case? And was was that helpful, Michael? We did get a questionnaire and uh, it was uh, it was enormously helpful. We also had just a, a, a great judge, uh, Judge Kogan in the Eastern District of New York. Um, really smart, very hardworking and really, really cares. Um, and he really cared about making sure that uh, that uh, that it was going to be a, a fair jury uh, that was going to be impaneled. I think he recognized uh, that there there could be people feel very strongly about uh, former President Trump, um, and uh, he recognized that it would not be fair to have a jury uh, that would be assessing Tom Barrick, not based on his own conduct, but based on um, his association with somebody that they feel very strongly about. And he really, you know, he really cared about about 
taking the answers that people gave in the in the questionnaires uh, and and uh, using that to try to draw people out to to get them to be candid about about how strongly they feel. Were you able to do social media research live, like while you're getting the questionnaires back? Some judges don't let you do that. Were you guys allowed to do that? Um, yeah, different judges have uh, have different practices uh, uh, on that uh, on that subject, and a lot of times it's just it's there's not that much information that you can really you know receive from from that anyway. Yeah, no, I, but you know, I, it's I always find it crazy that judges limit you on the social media research you can do on jurors because they they may say one thing in a in a questionnaire and you find out you know that they're posting uh, in the Gillum case we found out after the fact that one of the holdout jurors for conviction was posting you know Trump is still my president we weren't allowed to do social media research it's you know it, it just uh, drove us crazy that that was the juror who we obviously would have stricken. Um, so let, let's get to the openings. You know, Randall referenced it. And, you know, I love that that um, I read the opening last night, Michael, and I just loved how you started out with a story that at the beginning, you're wondering, what what is he talking about here? Russia's invading Ukraine and and uh, talking about McDonald's closing shop. And, and then you tie it in. Um, can you tell us a little, you know, the story that you used and a what the story was and were you concerned that you were going to draw an objection by starting with the story um so i was not uh particularly concerned uh about that it's kind of hard just in your first few words for the government to stand up and object as you as as, as the opening is just beginning and also you know i think that storytelling is a is a big part of uh connecting um, it's a big part of uh, of helping people understand what may be a, a complex set of facts. Um, so uh, we chose the story that we worked with, <coughs> excuse me, based on what Randall Randall's theory of inception. So I, I've never met anybody who has thought harder about how to persuade and about how people decide. Um, Randall's, uh, you know, really gets into the social, uh, science of it. Um, and he, uh, you know, he believes, uh, in this, in this theory of inception that people may not ultimately know how they reach decisions at the end of the day. Um, cause just a lot of emotion associated with it, but, uh, you can incept certain ideas that they're going to carry with them as they're hearing all the evidence. The story that, uh, that we focused on, I mean, this is, a uh, the, crime charged here is uh, that Tom Barrick was an illegal agent of the United Arab Emirates. That has a legal definition. It means you have to be someone who has agreed that you will act subject to the direction or control of this foreign power. So what does that mean? To agree to act subject to direction or control. If the government if the government presents evidence that they ask for something and he does it and a defendant does it, does that mean that they have agreed to act subject to their direction or control? Our point was no. That's not what that means. Um, it, just because you may make a, a unilateral, independent decision to do something, and it may be consistent with the request. So what was the story? story was uh, Vladimir Zelensky addressed uh, Congress uh, and said, all American businesses must stop doing business with Russia right now. And shortly after that speech, McDonald's uh, pulled out of Russia. They shuttered 800 restaurants that they had in, uh, in Russia. Now, uh, that was the right thing to do um, uh, by McDonald's. Uh, but does it make them an, an agent of Ukraine? No, 
It doesn't because even though they happened to be doing what Ukraine asked, they weren't they had not agreed to act subject to their direction or control. They were making unilateral, independent decisions about what was right. And that was really the theme of our defense is that Tom Barrick was nobody's agent. This man is a unbelievably successful, um, you know, strong willed, uh, accomplished individual. He doesn't make decisions because anybody from the UAE or Saudi Arabia asks him to do things. He does things because he thinks it's the right thing to do. He thinks it's the right thing to do for his business, uh, for his principles. And that was really the theme of our defense is that he's his own man. And so that's how that story kind of incepts uh, that idea in uh, in Randall's uh, words. I, I find this idea and, and thinking about persuasion fascinating. And, and really the reason I do the podcast, because I'm, I'm so interested in how criminal defense lawyers are able to overcome all of the burdens that we face, all the hurdles that we face going into a trial. Um, and and there's very significant. I mean, we're the one profession where everybody's sort of rooting against us, right? The judge, the prosecutors, the the media, um, a doctor goes in to, uh, you know, do surgery. Everybody's rooting for the doctor to to be <laughs> successful. Everybody's rooting against us. And so it is really tricky, the first words out of your mouth in an opening. Um, Randall, talk a little about, I mean, to me, you know, when you watch a boxing match, even if you don't know either boxer, you find yourself pulling for one over the other. And so I always wonder, like, why? Why is that? Why do we find ourselves siding early on? Um, tell us a little about your theory of inception. Well, I mean, <clears throat> I think the boxing thing is so real. People have an inclination and it's fascinating, right? Because we've all been in a million trials where judges give the instruction over and over and over again. Don't make a decision before. Don't make any decisions. Don't deliberate. Wait till you hear everything. But people are people. And at each point, I think throughout a trial, people, I think it is like a boxing match. I think people are keeping score somewhere in their head about how they felt about that moment. What was more compelling to them? The, the cross-examination with that witness or the, the direct examination. In the opening statement, I've been amazed really in, in some trials. I mean, we've, we've faced some very talented uh, government attorneys in the last few years, but I have been amazed at some trials over the years where you know attorneys have, to my, to my view, taken a like a minimalist or, or a disengaged approach on opening statement. I believe, you know, it's it's arguable that the opening statement is the single most important part of the trial. And so to the extent that you have core themes that you really, really need the jury to utilize as a lens to analyze what's going to happen after that, I don't see how you're not trying to get those themes out in front of the jury right at the beginning of the trial in a way that they're going to digest and understand and hopefully think about and they say to themselves like i think with this one I, I was watching the jury and they were they were digesting that mcdonald's ukraine uh analogy as mike was telling it to them and you could see the recognition on their face and i don't think that you know <laughs> we won the trial at that moment but i think that we won that moment because the jurors were so engaged they were so digesting what was being said and they had taken on that magnifying glass that Mike was handing to them. And they were, you know, I think that they utilize it throughout the trial. And and what about yeah, I say, if, if I yeah. can add to one thing to that, you did point out, uh, David, that uh, that um, who's rooting for who. And one of the things that's been fun for me to see as I've tried a lot of cases with, uh, with Randall is that uh, 
He has this very, um, this very warm, magnetic, entertaining personality. Uh, and it's unique. I've never, um, I mean, I'm sure if I saw you in the courtroom, David, I'm sure it would be the same, but, uh, uh, it, it's a, it's a re- very rare quality. Uh, and I have always be- believed that jurors, the minute they get to know him are rooting for him. Like that's, that's the guy who I want to see. Um, that's the guy that's fun to watch. And this is a, also a very good person. And I think he, uh, he's able to attract that, that, as you put it, rooting interest, um, very early on. It's so important. I think, you know, one of the things we have going for us as defense lawyers is, you know, prosecutors have become more minimalist and and sort of, you know, sticking to their scripts. And so jurors perk up when the defense lawyer stands up. They want to hear what's going on, especially in these high profile cases. So so let, let me ask you about the opening. Did, did you use demonstratives, Mike? A lot of jurors now want to see um, as well as here, were there, was it a PowerPoint? Was it demonstrative or was it, um, old school with none, none of that? Uh, it was pretty limited. Uh, there was, uh, we did use some visuals, uh, but it was, uh, it was not, uh, it was not that heavy. Um, I will say that's a, it's also a product of, uh, Randall's influence again, his, uh, and, and he's, he's great. It'd be great to talk about. He should talk about it. Um, the view that PowerPoint actually prevents people from absorbing information and prevents them from focusing on what you have to say. I'm not entirely sure I'm completely convinced about it. <laughs> Randall's got some very strong feelings. And as a result, we have pulled back uh, on some of the visuals so that people will focus more on what's uh, on what's said. Randall? Yeah, I mean, look, if... Uh... I, I I think if I was trying a case with somebody who I thought was less compelling, I might be like, let's step, let's amplify the PowerPoint. Uh, let's try to minimize you and amplify the PowerPoint. But uh, Mike is a very, very compelling person in front of the jury. He's got an instant charm with them. And to my mind, I, I do think there's been, you know, PowerPoint, I think is, is a little bit, there've been, it's a little bit of a disease that we've all been infected with. And the problem is once you start creating a PowerPoint, it's very difficult to exercise the discipline and not try to create a slide for everything. And, and, and it's just not the way normal people communicate. I always, um, I've like talked to, uh, uh, you know, when I used to do some, some trainings, uh, of younger attorneys, I'll talk to them about it. I'm asking the question, Look, if you were in a serious, serious discussion with one of your spouses and, you know, maybe they they were under the mistaken belief that 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 you had, you know, had an extramarital affair, you needed to communicate to them the truth about how that was not the case. Would you ever put together a PowerPoint for that conversation? <laughs> Is it, would, would, would you would you even consider it? And, and the answer, I think, is no, because you would be terrified at the instant lack of you know authentic connection that is created the moment that you're not having that conversation now look you might in that conversation want to show them a few things like look here i want to show you my phone here i want to show you these text messages this and the other and i think to the extent that you have a powerpoint that's limited enough that it feels like that just accents of a of an authentic conversation it works and i think it was killer the way Mike did it in this opening statement, I, I really, it, it was it was just limited enough 
the the jury probably a bet if you ask them today they wouldn't even remember the powerpoint i think they would only remember him talking and that i think is the ideal you know in, in the gillum trial that we just did the government had like a 250 slide powerpoint for closing which we were thrilled about <laughs> because you could just see the jurors after like slide five and they saw you could see on the right hand side that they were you know how many more were coming and you could see they just they just turned off um and, and it's just it's just wild that they thought that that would be an effective way to to present the case um what one of the things i'm i'm really interested in with with other lawyers is sort of the routine of trial and how people stay you know in these long trials um what they do you know even though this was sort of in town for you are you guys staying at home and and traveling to court every morning were you in a hotel what what's the what's the routine Michael, we'll start with you. Sure. Uh, so even though Brooklyn's not that far from the Upper West Side where I uh, where I live, um, I did stay. We stayed at a hotel. Um, I think that, that that commute, which would have been about 45 minutes in the morning uh, and can be a little bit unpredictable, is too much to bear. At that hour and a half, uh, you can't um, uh, can't can't give that up uh, to the commute. And so I stayed at, uh, at a hotel, which is just a couple blocks away from, um, from the hotel. Um, Randall, however... Being a uh, authentic Brooklyn native, uh, did stay at home. But we were we worked out of a war room at the hotel, and so we were there until you know until late uh, every night together. And, and are you guys you know the kinds of lawyers who are you know getting three or four hours? I need my sleep, so so I I still even when I'm in trial, I need to get six hours of sleep, or I'm I'm a mess the next day. But some I don't know how some of these people do it. They stay up all night. What what about you, Randall? What are you a are you up all night guy? No, no. You know, in my in my my normal uh, you know dysfunctional lawyer life, I, I might pull three four hours of sleep, but I'm a I'm a very very firm believer that when you're preparing for trial, when you're in those critical weeks and months, when you're leading up to the trial and during the trial, you've got to get the full night of sleep, whatever you got to do. So we're in the trial room late um, by our standards, you know, uh, ten o'clock, eleven o'clock, midnight. But usually by, you know, whatever calculated hour, usually by about 11 o'clock, 1130, uh, getting out of there, making sure we get, you know, the full night of sleep because you, you just can't be on the next day and listening and tuned in in the way that you need to be when you are fatigued and it just accumulates over the course of the trial. Yeah, it does. It's, it's hard. I, I actually find I'm better on the out of town trials when I can be in a hotel. Because when I go home, you know, you're dealing with the kids, you're trying to catch up on your work emails. When I'm out of town, sort of everybody leaves me alone. And and so I can get a little more sleep, actually. Uh, I don't have to do the commute back to the house and, and things like this. So I, I kind of enjoy the out-of-town trials more than the in-town trials. Anyway, um, let me ask you this. I, in, reading about the, in reading about the case, I saw there were a lot of high-profile witnesses like, like Steve Mnuchin. Were those high-profile witnesses government witnesses, Michael, or, or did you all call them? Uh, we called uh, Secretary Mnuchin um, in our defense case, and he was an extremely uh, compelling witness. Uh, it wasn't lengthy testimony, but it was really important. Um, he testified about a there was sort of a, a diplomatic incident where Tom Barrick, uh, instead of doing what you would think a, a secret UAE agent would do, and advocate for the UAE's interest, 
the UAE had taken a very aggressive stance towards uh, uh, the country of Qatar, which is a country that Tom has a lot of ties to. And he advocated strongly against the UAE's interests. So it was very powerful uh, testimony. And uh, Secretary Mnuchin did a really great job. It was short. It was tight. Um, and, uh, and, and I think it was really compelling. Um, Randall, the government called, uh, secretary, former secretary of state Rex Tillerson, um, and, uh, and, and Randall, uh, handled that cross-examination. It was very effective. He should, uh, he should be the one that talks about that. But Let's was, uh, hear about that, Randall. No, I mean, <clears throat> uh, secretary Tillerson, who is a, who is a gentleman, uh, came to testify. Obviously we had never met him before. We had never spoken with him, but, um, you know, I think we took this perspective as we were sort of strategizing around how we were going to deal with Secretary Tillerson, that we were going to make him a witness for us. And and this is really one of the one of the things that I think Mike, in terms of trial strategy, is so good at thinking about uh, across the trials that we have done. Just this idea of let's step back from this reflexive idea that a lot of defense attorneys engage in in terms of how we can discredit this guy. And instead, think about what is what is it that this witness can do for us? And so Tillerson ended up we stepped back and it, it, the, the, the direct was almost irrelevant to us. But on cross, we focused on the fact that here they were putting on the witness stand a guy who had been in charge of Exxon, one of the most international companies in the world who had engaged in any number of dealings with of foreign leaders as a requirement of his job over the course of the years. So I think because the government anticipated, and I'm only speculating, the government did, it, did, did, did a very good job at this trial. They were a very effective team of AUSAs. But I think Tillerson was a good example of where they were focused on thinking, oh, we were going to try to discredit Tillerson's story in some, in some way. And they weren't thinking about what we actually did, which was we put up the photos of him uh, meeting with high-ranking government officials and other uh, in, in other parts of his job, um, we we talked to him about the fact that he had to deal with Vladimir Putin as a normal part of his job as the head of a, a complex international company, and you know he admitted on the witness stand that it was key and critical to his obligations as the head of a complex international company to engage in in communications with. Uh, you know, government leaders and that it did not make him their agent. <laughs> so it was, I think, for the jurors, quite a wake up call. And uh, it was it ended up being a very helpful bit of testimony. Amazing. You know, the other thing that I noticed is, is you know, there was a co-defendant in the case represented by Abby Lowell, who's who's been in the news lately. We've seen him a bunch um, in some high profile cases. I always find with co-defendants, it's it's interesting, right? Trying to find the right balance of really working with the other side, making sure you're on the same page. Um, friendly fire with co-defendants is the worst. Um, how did you all work together? Was it was it a nice team defense, a joint defense with Abby, or or were you guys in your separate corners, Michael? No, we it was a it was a terrific uh, partnership. Abby is a uh, is a very talented, uh, very talented trial lawyer. Um, jury uh, jury loved him. Judge loved him. Uh, he's great, uh, and um, doing it for as long as he has, he recognizes what you pointed out um, that 
you know, the friendly fire is a disaster. Um, and we're better off uh, making sure that we understand what we're doing. Now, there are certain points that he's going to want to make that are uh, that that we may wish uh, he didn't. Um, but, you know, as long as we know what's coming, as long as defense lawyers are communicating uh, and knowing what's coming and maybe hearing each other out on different ways to accomplish the same objectives, um, that's the best way to protect their clients. Uh, he was uh, he was terrific, uh, really terrific to deal with and and, and fun to watch. We had him uh, on the podcast talking about the John Edwards trial, which was a wonder, another wonderful uh, victory. And he's he's got his uh, his work cut out for him coming up. Um, one of one of the other really fascinating decisions and and issues that come up in every criminal case is: Do you call your client to testify? So, so here you end up calling your client. Um, was that a decision you had made before the case starts? Do you make it uh, at the close of the government's case? Was it a game time decision? Randall, we'll start with you on on uh, calling the client to testify. So I, I don't think that we had made a final determination about whether or not um, Tom would be called until right before, um, because there were a lot of dynamics to that. But I will say this, you know, and this is another thing I, I, I've really got to give my credit for. He, he is better than any attorney I've ever worked with at thinking about how you start to prepare for the possibility of a very extensive defense case, particularly one uh, that has an extensive detailed testimony from the defendant well in advance of trial. And I think for a lot of people, they think, well, how can I even do that? I don't know what this trial is going to look like. I haven't gotten the 3,500 material. I don't know what to get in front of. But Mike does a, does a, is, is very, very skilled at anticipating all of the different directions that uh, a, a trial can go in and trying to empower a client to think about these things well in advance of the case and to think about what it would mean to testify so that the client, by the time he gets to the point of the decision, the final decision is empowered to make that decision and is comfortable that through the preparation they've seen and thought about every issue that could come through. And so I've seen Mike now, we, we, we've had uh, multiple cases where we have called uh, our client uh, and it's been successful and uh in this one i mean this was the best direct examination i've ever heard mike had uh a tom who who by the way is is one of the nicest uh and most charming people uh that i've ever met um it, it was really an honor to work for him in this case but i think we all know uh as defense attorneys and as attorneys in general when you put someone on the stand it can be the the greatest person in the world and when they're not properly prepared, both in the direct and the cross-examination, we watch them blow up all the time. And you're like, how does the jury end up thinking that this guy who I think is great is a villain? Well, the key to that, I think, is the preparation, the meticulous preparation, and really not being afraid of making this uh, a, a complete attempt to tell the story of the client. And so in the direct, what Mike did was really walk through every aspect of Tom's life that actually mattered to our case and making sure that the jurors knew him and, and, and got this very genuine feeling about what Tom was about and what his life was about 
I think there were some moments during it where, you know, Tom was talking about some of his personal relationships and, and, you know, Mike was listening things in a way that was not at all contrived. It was like a very natural conversation, but I think the people in the courtroom were almost moved to tears. So it was, um, it was, it was a fantastic thing. And I think our, our decision making from the stamp from the start was based on the idea that it's a case where knowledge and intent are at issue. And our client is this huge guy who's been on CNN, et cetera. We got to be at least prepared to tell that story if we need to tell that story at the end of the case, because the jurors are going to have some real curiosity in any case where those are the issues. And you have a person like Tom Barrick, who is the, uh, who's the client. Michael, you know, you and I talked about that. Yeah, go ahead, please. I was just going to add to that, that, um, that I think that a lot of times it's very important to put on the defendant when it is necessary to remove a mask, a caricature that the government will, if the person doesn't take the witness stand, be successful in, you know, in, 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 in painting some cartoon and that's who he is. And then the jury can too easily put them in that, in that bucket for Tom, it was, you know, he's a Trump associate. That's who he is. And then people are going to come to that with all kinds of preconceived notions. But to spend any time actually hearing him, actually hearing his very uh, compelling uh, personal story. I mean, he really, you know, he he made himself. This is a, this is a self-made individual. And he also is just very warm and genuine. I can't, you know, I can't echo enough what Randall said. I mean, the 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 man is just he's a he's a great man and a good man in every sense of the word and there was no way that uh that that particularly if it's lengthy testimony the jury isn't going to be able to size somebody like that up and say this is this is a good person you know michael you you and i spoke about this at recently at this conference about in white collar cases calling the client and how important it is in a lot of these white collar cases to do so I think for you know a long time, of course, the old school traditional belief was you don't call the client in a criminal defense case; it's too risky, blah blah blah. Um, but but you really believe it's important um, when you can to do it, right? I mean, th- that's an important part of of these white collar criminal defense cases, unless there's a compelling reason not to. And the difference is, I think that that conventional wisdom comes from representing a whole bunch of people that are. That are pretty clearly guilty and so what you're really focusing on is whether or not the government you know is going to meet its burden but in white collar cases there's just a lot of nuance and there's a lot of things that uh that the government may be able to point to or be able to be confused themselves into thinking as evidence of guilt but you really if you really understand that these people are are innocent you know there is a lot of uh zeal to prosecute white collar defendants because it's going to it's going to improve uh the you know the the reputation the uh the uh of the prosecutors the prosecutors are thinking a little bit of of of, of personal aggrandizement that it's going to be a feather in their cap in a way that a lot of criminal cases it doesn't it's just it's just another day at work for a prosecutor in these big white collar cases um there is that element of it and they convince themselves that the person did something wrong because they want to bring the case so bad uh, but these are people that have a story to tell because they didn't they weren't intending to do anything wrong. And and so there's not you know, they, they can be very powerful uh, advocates for themselves. And I would just add to that. I mean, even beyond the question of whether or not that conventional wisdom comes from people who are more often guilty, 
it comes from people who have a lot more baggage than many defendants do today, white collar or not. I think that, you know, um, you know, one of the the reality is, uh, you know, there are less repeat offenders in the federal system, in part because the, the sentences are so long. But in general, people are, you know, coming to the court with less baggage than, you know, people who are on trial than the people who were tried, you know, in the early part of the 20th century where someone could rack up 40 different uh, convictions for the exact same thing before they got to their 41st trial. So, you know, even situation, even when there is baggage, when I was a PD, I, I always like to call my client even when there was baggage, because I, I thought a lot of the baggage is going to come out anyway. And so let them get up and, and say, you know, I did those things and I pled guilty or whatever. I didn't do this. And that's why I'm in trial, whatever the whatever the explanation is. But if the baggage is coming out, sometimes it's worth putting the guy up there. Um, totally. um anyway, what one part, totally. um, Michael, that I liked about about the direct, and I this really had an impact on me when I was reading about it, was you asked him about why he never asked Trump for a pardon. And and I thought that had a lot of impact for for lots of different reasons. Um, it's you know talk about that for a minute and and um, what the answer was. Well, it was a question that Randall posed in uh, in prep, so I can take no credit for it uh, other than its placement at the very end. Um, but the question that was uh, that was posed is you you, uh, you during the course of your association with the Trump administration, people came to you. Uh, asking for pardons. Um, sometimes you you suggested uh, to the White House that there be uh, people get pardoned. How, how come you didn't ask? You never asked for a pardon for yourself. And he was able to say, because I didn't do anything wrong. And it has, it's very powerful. It's short. The answer is short, but it's very powerful. And it is compelling because if he was guilty of something, he of course could have gotten a pardon from President Trump, but he never asked. Because he didn't do anything wrong, and it's got—I it, it, think it was very persuasive. I love it. So, so, so great, um, and hard for the prosecutors to be able to to combat that. Let's talk about closing. Which I have to say, Randall, I ate up that closing when I was reading it. It was so <laughs> great. Um, the storytelling was wonderful. The Norman Mineta story, uh, I loved. So, so why don't we start with that? Can you can you tell us just briefly what the what the Mineta story was and um, cause I think, I think our listeners would love to hear that. Sure. I mean, <clears throat> yeah, thanks for that. That, 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 that means a lot. Um, the, you know, the, the story, Norman Mineta was a really amazing American citizen who, uh, as a young boy, uh, was, um, very unfortunately during, you know, World War II, one of the, uh, one of the people who the U S government placed into, um, were basically Japanese internment camps. Um, and, um, we, we took, you know, in, in the summation, started out the summation by talking a little bit about giving them an image of this young boy, Norman, and how he ended up in this situation being taken away from his family. Uh, you know, he was with his, his immediate family being taken away from his community to this place that was very far away, um, without process all on the basis of the, the theory that these citizens, these, these, these Japanese citizens who love their country could possibly have been subject to the direction and control of the Japanese government simply because of their association 
uh, their ancestral or familial association with Japan and how much that was in tension with the most cherished values of our country. And <clears throat> I think in telling it um, and in telling how Norman Mineta ended up uh, uh, becoming, you know, a, a congressman, um, a member of, of cabinet uh, for both Democratic and Republican administrations, it was an attempt as we were sitting around thinking about what kinds of stories we could tell that would, you know, crystallize to the jury what we've been trying to communicate throughout the trial, that this was a fundamentally unfair and fundamentally inconsistent with our most cherished values concept that was being applied here. This idea that you could simply, because of a person's associations with people abroad, conclude that they should be you know, locked up as an agent of a foreign power. And, um, you know, we used uh, in, in the in the summation um, <clears throat> some of President Reagan's own words when he uh, talked about uh, years later after the, you know, after, you know, 50 years after uh, the, the very terrible decision of the U.S. government to, to uh, basically imprison all these Japanese citizens who had done nothing wrong, we used his words where he talked about the fact that the reason that this was done was because of a hysteria about the threat of foreign, you know, control and the critical absence of a jury uh, in making these kinds of determinations. And, and you know, I, you know, I thought it was important to start there because we wanted the jury to, again, be reminded of the lens that we wanted them to look at all this evidence through as we went back and sort of talked about what we thought was fundamentally incorrect in the government summation and what had just been wrong in this whole trial. So um, that was that was the Norman Netta piece. I, I really liked it. Um, and I think storytelling, you know, throughout the trial is so important, like you say, from the opening with the McDonald's story to the closing with this story. I did see an expression that I had never seen before in your closing, which I think I might steal. He does not know the Falcon will grill it. I I love that. Um, wh where did you did you did you hear that? How did you hear that? Well, <clears throat> that's that's actually something that uh, uh, <laughs> that um, we came across from one of our clients' uh, writings. That uh, you know he used to do these these notes to his um, he used to do these notes to his. Uh, basically his employees and, 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 you know, partners and his businesses, and he would send them out very, very thoughtful notes, deeply thoughtful notes. And they would be his ideas and sometimes proverbs. And this is an old, uh, you know, Middle Eastern proverb that, uh, that, that we found in one of the notes. And, and I think when we saw it, we all just thought this is just a perfect encapsulation of this idea that you can really mistake, you know, who someone is um, and, and, and what their value is when you don't really understand all of the facts, when you don't really understand what that person's utility is, what their, what their objectives are. And so we thought that the idea of Tom is, you know, analogous to the Falcon, this aid to the, to, you know, to the hunters in the Middle East who were in this difficult environment was something that was compelling. So, you know, I decided to put in this summation. So the jury goes out. Um, to me, always the worst part of any trial, you're waiting around, 
Um, Michael, how long is the jury out and what do you guys do when the jury's out? I can't do anything. I sit there and, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a wreck. How about you guys? That was our game plan. Be a wreck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. How long was the jury out? That's a that's a good question. Was it a couple a couple days? Yeah, it was a couple of days. Yeah, I mean there were a lot of charges. Um, they they charged you know Tom with not only these these um, uh, you know this agency thing, which was the core of the case, the, the 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 claim that he was working as an agent of foreign powers in the UAE and, and, and Saudi Arabia, but also with obstruction of justice and multiple counts of false statements. So <clears throat> based on the notes that we were getting, we thought that the jury was actually moving through the counts pretty quickly. Um, they, they seemed to get to the to the latter counts by like the second day. Um, but, you know, it was a great jury. Very, very. You could tell they were very attentive throughout the entire trade case. Very thoughtful. And I think that they wanted to make sure that they were, you know, looking at each one of these counts and what the law was on it, you know, appropriately. And so, you know, it was less time than, than I always heard the conventional wisdom it was a lot less than that, right? Which is a, a day of deliberation for every uh, week of trial. It was, uh, it was a couple of days of deliberation. So one of the things that I, I talk about a lot on this podcast is how we criminal defense lawyers do not savor the wins enough and, and we move too quickly on to the next case. And, and you know, it, it's important because this is a really tough thing that we do. Um, Michael, did you guys get to celebrate afterwards or were you back in uh, in the offices the next day? Did you take some time and and really enjoy this? I got to tell you the truth of the matter is I'm uh, I'm still celebrating. You know, it's uh, this is one of those moments when you have someone who who you truly believe in their innocence and also beyond that in their fundamental goodness. Um, And one of the things that nobody can know, but uh, folks that have been through this process, either as defense lawyers or or as those that have been charged, there is nothing like this experience. I mean, it's it is uh, unbelievably stressful. It's stressful for the lawyers, but you know, for the people that are actually going through it, for their families, um, there is there is no greater burden from the moment that they find out that they're uh, about to be charged or that they've been charged uh, until until that that burden is lifted and they're able to see the clear skies. <laughs> I mean, it's horrible. It's horrible. And the ability to then take somebody who has been, you know, wrongfully accused and have that, that cloud be lifted. It's unbelievable. Uh, it's something to to hold on to for your entire life. Yeah, And we did, we did, you know, that day we did have a very nice celebration. You know, the, the entire team was there. Uh, you know, Tom is, and, and all of his friends and family who were so supportive throughout the case. And that was, that was a very special moment, including I'll, I'll note, um, we, we also had co-counsel from, from O'Melvenia Myers, Jim Bowman, and some of the other, uh, members of the team who were fantastic. Uh, but, you know, everybody, you know, was, it was, I think, appreciating exactly what Mike was just saying. It's like this moment where you have this fundamentally good person go through hell go through the most difficult thing that you can Im- ever imagine. And then it's, and then, and then it's over. And it's very, very rewarding. I have to say, you know, both of you spoke really well about this and it's important. It is one thing that I think that young prosecutors who have never represented someone before understand. And, and 
you know, now as a criminal defense lawyer, you see it, you almost wish that prosecutors could be criminal defense lawyers for a few years first and understand what even a charge does to somebody in their family. It, I, I, it's not because they're bad people. I just don't think they understand what what happens to somebody when they're charged in a federal criminal case. It's it's a it's a devastating thing, as Michael and 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 you Randall talk about. Oh, totally. I mean, <laughs> I've, I've seen people's lives upended unimaginably by a subpoena, by a search warrant. Um, I mean, when when people when that indictment comes down, I, I do think the who has no real appreciation for it and some people you know um look i you know some people have had the good fortune of never having had someone that they personally know face a, a criminal charge you know i i certainly knew people who face criminal charges uh, uh throughout my life and so i think had some appreciation of the gravity of it all even when i was a prosecutor but i think that as a prosecutor you can become it, the whole thing can become numb to people especially if they don't or, or casual, especially if they haven't had the type of experience that you're talking about, David, before. Um, so I, I do think it would be a good thing if more if more people got insight into that. You know, you guys have been so gracious with your time and and I love speaking to, you know, real criminal defense lawyers like you guys about the practice. It's It's fascinating to me. A lot of young lawyers listen to the podcast and so this is where I'll end. They want to know, you know, how do you develop these trial skills? How do you become great trial lawyers? I was lucky. I had lots of great mentors. I like to go to court and watch. I still love reading these transcripts. Like I got a, I just really enjoyed reading the openings and closings last night. What's your advice? We'll start with you, Michael, to young lawyers on how to how to get into this crazy business that we're in of being of being trial lawyers. Well, I I, I, uh, I I always preach the the benefits uh, and virtues of public service. Um, you know, whether that's being, you know, a, a public defender, whether it's being a prosecutor, it gives you an opportunity to actually get uh, get in court and get get your reps. And it's the kind of thing that I think is very hard to do. It's hard to be comfortable. It's hard to be effective if you don't do it a lot. And a lot of firms, it's hard to get that uh, that experience. Uh, whereas public service. Just provides really great uh, experiences, and I think it's the best way if you want to be a trial lawyer to uh, uh, to to get your start. Randall, go to court. Um, when I was a, a a law clerk, when I was a young attorney, every moment that I wasn't working, I was going to watch people in court. You mentioned Jerry Sargell. I remember as a law clerk, uh, you know, when I had you know what should have been vacation time, I spent it watching him try a case in the Eastern District of New York as a very young attorney where he got an acquittal, the, the murdering trial, and just digesting everything I was seeing. It's the greatest free entertainment and education that so few people take advantage of. I mean, David, you know, you are, you're a great lawyer. It's an honor to be on here. I, I, I remember when, uh, you know, you mentioned Casey was around during your trial every day. You know, I was asking you to give me the details of what was going on, even though I had nothing to do with it, just to hear and just to be able to hear the details of what was happening with all the things, the great things you were doing in, in your trial uh, with uh, Mr. Gillum. You know, that's my advice to young attorneys. Get out there. You know, don't watch. You don't have to watch The Lincoln Lawyer on Netflix. You can go watch 
court and actually digest what attorneys are doing and and, and learn. So. Well, it was my honor to have you guys on. It's it's been amazing getting to know you recently and watching all your successes and and I know there's a lot more to come. So thank you for for being on the podcast, guys. Thank you so thank much. You. Thanks so much. It's funny, I always get asked which is your favorite episode and which episode do you recommend listening to? I really think every time I do one, it's my new favorite episode. I really enjoyed this one with Schachter and Jackson. They're such fighters, trial lawyers, and I learned a lot from speaking with them. I I enjoyed it tremendously. So I hope you did as well. I hope you have a great holiday season. Um, We're going to gear up for season six in the new year. Hopefully I can squeeze in some episodes between trials. And I appreciate you all for listening. Please share with your friends. Please do all those things that everybody asks you to do for podcasts. Leave comments, like, and so on. It, It helps us out and helps us get listeners. So I appreciate you all and happy holidays. Thank you to Michael and Randall. Uh, for doing this. I really appreciate them both. Thank you.